Okay, Shiv Sengupta, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me. Appreciate it. Uh, Shiv, can I read uh, a passage off the back of, of uh, one of your books, An Antidote to Spiritual Enlightenment? Truth seekers begin their forward journey, believing life to be suffering and imagining the elixir of enlightenment to be the cure to the human condition. Yet after years of spiritual practice, myriad teachings and mystical fireworks, they may eventually arrive at a space where all remedies have been exhausted, all paths well-worn, all rabbit holes thoroughly excavated and still. That gnawing sense of something missing persists. This is when the return journey commences, beginning with sobriety, it turns to anarchy and eventually leads to the antidote. So yeah, that... Uh, message if you like for the lack of a better term um hits hits me um i've been trudging a path for uh maybe a decade now and it got to the point a few years back where i just sort of threw everything in the air and i was just like this is a complete waste of time i can't be with this anymore so when i read works such as that um that really does hit home uh can we start shiv it says at the beginning there, truth seekers begin their forward journey. Let's start there. What is a truth seeker? Well, they're somebody who suspects there's more to life than what they're interpreting through their thought processes and their conditioned responses to life, right? Somebody who's trying to get to the bottom of something deeper. Mm. Now, they may not, they may not, um, they may not articulate it as truth itself. They may not know that they're driven by truth. They may think that they're driven by something else. But fundamentally, they're moving towards a deepening of their understanding of reality and self, right? At a certain point, it hits home that what they're really seeking is reality, is themselves. And that typically begins their spiritual seeking journey, right? And then they're going in search of some version of reality they've been told is true or some version of the self or non-self that they've been told is true. Some of them will have some reference to a mystical experience or you know, momentary awakening experience they've happened, that's happened to them. And then they're trying to either replicate that or trying to understand what happened to them through the lens of spiritual doctrine and teachings. But even that doesn't explain it. It's just more culture-making and one of the one of the points that I get to the root of in my book is how destructive culture is to the act of truth seeking, because it really undercuts the whole process and the impulse itself. Yeah. So, what do you think drives that like creation of the culture? Do you know what I mean? It's like to me, I look at the spiritual environment and I see a marketplace more than I do something that works. Well, social survival, really, right? Like, why do we form tribes? Mm. It's it's ingrained within our DNA. We've we have a deep understanding, not at the intellectual level, but really at the instinctual level, that there is safety in numbers, and that if we are able to form tribes built around belief systems and commonly shared stories and all of that, 
then we will be motivated to take care of one another because we will feel the sense of camaraderie and shared reality with one another. There's a consensus within the group. And so we're always, this tribe making is always happening. We see, we see it in all forms of culture, music culture, fashion culture, the hipster culture. It's, it's all essentially the same. If you're sporting a giant beard and I'm sporting a giant beard and we pass each other on the street, we, we might give each other a nod and acknowledge the fact that we put in that investment into taking care of our beards. It can be that superficial, or it can be that you meditate and I meditate and we acknowledge that, you know, meeting at a party that we're both meditators. That's a shared experience now that we can congregate around and form a relationship around. So this is, this is a very human thing. It's not a spiritual thing. It's just a human thing. This is how we've learned to survive. This is how, you know, social hierarchies and, and systems are created. So why mm. culture making exists, I mean, it's, it's a survival instinct within us. Mm. And really, culture can form around absolutely anything. Music, yeah. sound, you know, a belief, truth-seeking, could be anything. Mm. There just seem to be a spark that sets off within people. Do you not think that sort of drives them towards that search? Something happens very often, suffering and pain, that makes them go that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there has to be an impulse that comes from somewhere. Um, for me, it came very early in life, and a lot of it was driven by suffering and pain and trauma. So the seeking, it's interesting. I, I did a podcast recently with my friend Stephen Lubka, and he asked a very similar question. And what I, I like to delineate and differentiate between the yearning and the seeking. Mm. The yearning is the impulse within a human being. You can't control it. It comes out of nowhere. It's a longing that we, we don't choose, but it takes a hold of us and becomes a compulsion. It drives us, right? It motivates us. The seeking is how we choose to deal with that yearning. That, the seeking is our strategy for coping with that yearning. So that seeking might be, uh, you know, following a teacher or reading some books, whatever it is. It's, you know, the human mind says, oh, there's this energy within me. I don't know what to do with it. So maybe I'll meditate or maybe I'll listen to, uh, you know, Krishnamurti for a couple of hours or it'll, it'll help sort out that energy. Sometimes it does organize it for a bit, but that yearning doesn't go away because that yearning is looking for its own unique resolution. It's not looking for Krishnamurti's resolution. It's not looking for the meditation technique that you've been taught by some master. Mm. It, is, it has arisen in Alex for a reason that is completely unique to Alex's existence. And until Alex can address it in an equally unique way, that yearning will always persist. And this is what I find with so many of my readers who've been seekers for 30, 40 years. Uh, you know, there's some of my readers who used to be Osho um, devotees and they lived in his ashram and all of that in the 60s mm. you know and they're still on that path of that yearning not being satisfied within them why because they, they've been trying to satisfy it using methods that are not tailored to their own unique yearning right mm. because they've not never really tried to encounter that face that head on and say, I'm not going to try and strategize on how to sort this out and fix it. I'm going to try and understand what it is trying to communicate to me. Mm. And, and that's, the, that's the trap that a lot of seekers fall into, is that they mistake their yearning 
to be some kind of a problem mm -hmm. that needs to be solved, and then seeking becomes the strategy to solve it. So I guess the question that comes up from that, what the solution to that yearning cannot be answered because it's individualized to everybody. Yeah, and it's not a solution really, mm. right? Because then you're, you're implying the yearning is a problem. Yeah, sure. Right. So, so it's, it's an energy that exists within us that's driving us to some purpose of its own. And we are simply moving along that path responding to its needs because it is a very it's a very intelligent energy that's the way i've experienced it mm -hmm. it's a very intelligent energy and if you allow it to drive your life and your choices and your motivations it will lead you to places and choices that help life align with who mm -hmm. you are in sort of a unique perspective but when we start deflecting and going off on detours then we end up in these little you know traps and and potholes where we get stuck for extended periods of time. Mm. Right. But they're not wrong enough themselves, right? Because I guess we can get into a bit of a philosophical thing, which I want to try and avoid, but but there isn't um there's nothing wrong per se in that occurrence, is there? It must happen yeah. in order to drag one back. There's nothing wrong in any of it. There's nothing right in any of it either. We're just working off of the assumption that the ultimate purpose to all of this is to alleviate suffering to some extent and to, to bring clarity to one's life. So if you just use that as the fundamental premise, then right and wrong would be, uh, you know, wrong would be something that continues that suffering and does not lend clarity. Mm. And right would be something that gradually puts suffering into perspective and does bring clarity. And what I'm saying is that seeking often takes us into paths that don't necessarily bring clarity in the long run, which is why people several years or decades later still find themselves repeating the same patterns over and over again. It's no, it's no different than, to use an you know, analogy that would relate to many people, the sense when you're young that you want to find a soulmate, that you, you want to share your life and companionship with a person, you know, uh, this desire to, to, to be with another human being, right? And so many people will, will form a list, an idea of the right kind of mate they're looking for and go out and try and find that person. And more often than not, that's the wrong person for them. And they'll repeat the same mistakes over and over again. So one bad relationship to another until eventually it might, you know, the penny might drop and they might realize that the kind of person they're looking for is maybe not the person that's best suited for them. Mm -hmm. And they might open up to a completely different kind of a relationship. Mm -hmm. But but this is why people make those mistakes. This is why these patterns repeat themselves, right? Similarly in this in the spiritual seeking um, endeavor. Yeah. What degree do you think that is like uh, physiological rather than like conditioned? I mean, you know, it's even to call it conditioned or physiological, you're just creating two different, you know, classifications of more or less the same thing. The condition is to a large extent is physiological and the physiological is to a large extent inherited, therefore conditioned, biologically conditioned, right? Right. So I, I, I guess I know, meant society then, if you put it like that. Yeah, even even society, I mean, there there is a there's a physiological aspect to the conditioning that society gives us to. There's a, there's a 
physical visceral reaction to trauma that we have when our cultural sensitivities are offended or hurt and so on and so forth, right? So um, I don't see a, a clear, distinct line between the psychological and the physiological because there's such a close relationship between the two and how they impact each other. Just, you know, la lack of sleep for a couple of days can cause so many psychological challenges. And, you know, so, but obviously social conditioning and the culture of your upbringing have a lot to do with it. Um, and so what the, the solution most people inadvertently seek out to get out of cultural conditioning is to seek another form of cultural conditioning, right? I, I remember watching this documentary about this guy in the 70s, I can't remember his name, he was known as a deprogrammer because, <laughs> because families whose kids had gone off during the hippie era and joined these Mooney cults. I, I don't know if you've, you remember the Mooney cults. Uh, there was a, this, this Korean couple who had created this cult of, they, they called the Moonies, and they were all the rage back in, wow. you know, this kind of the Scientologists of the, of the <laughs> 70s and 60s. Yeah. So, so these kids would get into these cults and completely become brainwashed. And this deprogrammer would go out there to decondition them. But he would do that by trying to reorient them back to the teachings of Christ right. and the church and all of that. So, so really, all it is is deconditioning by reconditioning. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. but, yeah, sure. but, but, what, but what does deconditioning just by itself look like without conditioning to some other belief system? Mm. I mean, to my mind, it comes pure, purity is the word probably that comes to my mind. When... Maybe. Maybe purity, but for me, it's more it's more of a question than a conclusion, right? Like, right. I I'm, I'm not trying to assert it is something. What I'm what I'm saying is I'm interested in the idea of deconditioning someone without having to condition them to some other system of life, because that's the real challenge. Most people are used to anchors; they need some kind of anchor to reality. So if it's not Jesus, then it's Buddha. If it's not prayer, it's meditation. If it's not materialistic society, it's spiritual spiritual society. Whatever it is, it's something, right? You're unhooking them from one anchor and hooking them to something else. But a human being that who's completely unhooked from everything. I don't think most people understand how terrifying a prospect that is. Because if they did, they wouldn't go in an all-fire hurry to get enlightened that fast. Because it, the people who have experienced being unhooked have never done it by choice. They never happened to me by choice. Okay, coming unhinged from reality never happened by choice. And when it did, it was a long process of orient, reorienting how to live in this reality now without any cultural or belief anchors. It's terrifying. And for it created a lot of its own kind of suffering, a brand of suffering that I'd never experienced prior to that. Mm. So Shiv, you're uh, briefly just touching on your, your history. Did you sort of grow up, uh, obviously you seem like you've got an Indian, Indian background. Did you grow up, um, you know, like India's very, everyone's meditating and sitting on the side of the streets and everything. Did you grow up around that, or were you like born into the West and and uh, grew up in the West? What what was your background there? No, I, I so I grew up in India. It's very interesting because 
my dad's family, um, my father meditated, my grandmother meditated. They're very spiritual. They come from a part of India, West Bengal, which is very spiritual. It's produced many artists and poets like Rabindranath Tagore and things like that. So they're more philosophical of mine. My mother's family comes from South India, which is very scientific of mine. And they're very much about, you know, engineering, medicine, this, that rational. Mm. A lot of the spiritual stuff is nonsense and bullshit. So interesting dichotomy. But when I was growing up, I didn't have that spiritual inclination at first. I wasn't interested at all. In it. I would see my dad meditate, but it was kind of this weird thing he was doing. I had zero interest in any of it. Uh, but it was... Around the time I started noticing issues within my family, the environment becoming more sort of negative between my parents and all of that, that caused a lot of psychological suffering for me. And quite spontaneously, one day, I think just the weight of it all had gotten so unbearable to me. I, as a child, I didn't know how to cope with it, right? And so I was internalizing a lot of it, thinking a lot of it's my fault. So I didn't like myself very much as a result. but. Um, I sat in my bedroom one night, turned off all the lights because, you know, it was kind of a response to a constant mm. stimulus. Mm. Turned off all the lights and I sat in the darkness and I just asked the question, I want to know who God is. Spontaneously, never occurred to me. That question never occurred to me before. And as I asked that question, the silence in the room became deafening and I just went into meditation for the next about an hour or so. Mm. And I began doing that every day. At the time, I didn't know it was meditating. Right? I didn't know that's what my dad did. All I knew is I like to sit in darkness in the silence because it's, it's like a cocoon, the world goes away, and I get to be at peace within myself. I began doing that over and over. At some point, I realized I was meditating and that I had a meditating pr practice, and I maintained that for you know, close to 30 years. Um, but that's how it started for me. Right. Do you think that that meditative uh, time had an impact on, let's call it awakening for the lack of a better term, or did it happen in spite of it? I've been asked that question so many times. My answer unequivocally is that it happened in spite of it. Right. Many people don't believe me mm -hmm. because they say, well, how do you know you meditated? I say, okay. But I, I know what it was that woke me up. And it wasn't meditating. It was the yearning to wake up that I did not choose. It was the yearning to wake up that led me to meditate. It was the yearning to wake up that led me to, to party and do drugs. It was the yearning to wake up that led me to have the relationship with the relationships with the women I did. It was the yearning to wake up that got me to drop out of school and change programs. It was the yearning to wake up that made me feel dissatisfied all the time with the reality that surrounded me to the point where it became so oppressive, living another day became unbearable, the prospect of it. That's what snapped it. So the causality between meditation and awakening, I think is more correlation than it is causation. Mm -hmm. It's the yearning, that, that, that fire that was within me. I mean, it was insatiable and it just consumed me all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So was that the the sense of suffering that come from that was the driving force behind the awakening process? Yeah, because what it did was it made it made my suffering feel even more acute. Mm -hmm. 
it made life feel like sandpaper grating against my skin at all times, right? Because when you develop that level of sensitivity to life, right? It's like, it's like, you know, after a certain amount of time, you know, if you work out with weights and stuff, you start developing calluses on your hand, which deaden the 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 pain. You don't you don't feel the weight of the you know the, the roughness of your on your skin. So it's like living without calluses. When you develop that level of sensitivity, everything becomes that much more sensitive. And you begin to feel the pain of others, the pain of the world, the madness of the world, all of that so acutely. It's uh, it inflicts upon a person's psyche. Could you function properly in a in a, a societal sense? Could you go to work, do all that stuff? Around the time I awakened, I was really struggling. Like I was, uh, I had suffered from depression for quite a long period of time. Mm. I was dragging myself to work because I mean, anyone who's gone through depression knows what that feels like. It's it's like treading through tar in order to do the most basic things. Some days were better than others. I was manic. I was up. I was down. All of that. But um, mm. so yeah, no, no. It was it was hard. It was hard to keep my shit together. So on the back of this book again, it says the return uh, the return journey commences once all paths uh, have been excavated. So what 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 is that point uh, or maybe share what happened with you and it was just like a constant seeking and searching maybe you spent time um, i know i did looking at different bloody buddhism and all these different things consumed as much as i possibly could until i remember that the day to be fair and i just pushed the book off the edge of the table i just i've had enough I, that was suffering enough to keep consuming all this information and, and knowledge um Maybe you could share what happened in your life. Um, obviously, you've wrote about it there that uh, this is the return journey commences beginning with sobriety. Well, I mean, what does that look like? Well, first, let me just say that, you know, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Mm. And Shiv doesn't read his own books. There's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason for that, right? Because... True, when, when you when you read teachers like Ramana or Nisargadatta, or they, they're not regurgitating what they've read somewhere. They're not following other teachers. All of that. They're just speaking about their direct experience of whatever is happening, right or wrong. They're not trying to assert whether the way they see it is the only way. But they're simply talking about their own experience. And it's compelling and interesting enough to other people to want to listen to them. That's how any of this happens, right? But the last thing they're doing is taking anybody else's authority on what life or self or any of this is other than what they perceive themselves. And even that, they don't take as the golden rule. They just take it as, this is what my perception tells me. This is what I'm gleaming from this, right? The return journey for me happened when, so a little bit of backstory. So my awakening happened in my early 20s, right? Up until that point, I hadn't been heavily into Eastern wisdom at all. In fact, in my high school and in the early years of university, what I found myself being drawn to was more Western philosophers, the existentialists. I was devouring Nietzsche yeah. by the by the minute, Sartre, uh, Kierkegaard. Like this was the stuff that really appealed to me because it appealed to my reason, right? Mm. Like I had that intellectual side of me that 
felt the need to, to be satiated. But when that awakening experience happened, it blew my mind because I could not explain it. I could not explain what had happened because suddenly the entire world opened up in a way that I didn't know possible. And I myself had completely disappeared from the equation in the form that I had always thought myself to be. And and then when I looked at all the stuff I'd read, like none of these guys had any point of reference to what was going on. So then I turned my attention to enlightenment teachings that seemed to be talking about this evaporation of self and the oneness and the unity and all of that. And I started reading it more in terms of trying to find a solution to how to get that experience back because they've experienced lasted about four months and vanished. And then that same craving, wanting, yearning came right back to get back to that place of peace and tranquility, equanimity, whatever you want to call it. So that's what started was actually post-awakening, funnily enough, my true spiritual seeking down this rabbit hole of non-duality all of that happened post-awakening, not pre-awakening. Um, and it got to a point where I was reading voraciously. I was watching YouTube videos voraciously. I was attending a retreat here and there. I went to one of Adya Shanti's retreats in, in California. And, and the next thing I know, I'm trying to like, you know, elevate myself and be in the state of perfect presence and constant awareness. And I began to realize it was kind of neurotic. It was it was a it was a madness of its own, trying to trying to live up to some rigid standard of what enlightenment should look like, and that's when I said, "What the fuck am I doing to myself? This is insane." I've I've gone from one kind of suffering to another kind of suffering, and I'm not being authentic to my experience at all. I'm trying to mold, constantly mold this moment into this form that I believe it should be. Right? So, so my, my definition of suffering is simply the desire to be someplace other than here, sometime other than now, and doing something other than what's actually happening. Those three things. Mm-hmm. If we can just be okay with being here, being now, and whatever's going on, it just if it's washing dishes or you know, folding on, whatever it is, you're okay with it, and nothing needs to be different for you to feel better in any way, that's good enough for me. That's as enlightened as anybody ever needs to be, okay? But I found that that was actually, that simple state itself was the hardest to achieve because my mind was so enculturated to want to mold reality into some predefined form culture had handed over to me. And I, like an idiot, just accepted, yes, this must be true, right? So I've done that with with what my parents and society had taught me. And now I was doing that with what spiritual teachers and all that had taught me. And that's when I said, hey, I'm, I'm just getting high of somebody else's drugs. That was the, the, the return journey, was the journey back to my own life, away from other people's opinions and ideas, whatever experiences. I don't care if some yogi's levitating on in air. Makes no difference to me. Good for him. That must be a lot, a lot of fun, but I'm not going to be levitating. I have no interest in levitating on air. I'm interested in what's going on right now. And right now, I'm talking to Alex, and I'm drinking a cup of coffee. That's as interesting as life needs to get for me. And it's fascinating that I can do this. It's fascinating that I can sit here in my living room in Canada on my phone, talking to some guy I've never met in the UK, I'm assuming, 
Again, mm. a cup of coffee. We take for granted that these kinds of things, the, the technology and the ability for us to exchange these ideas are miraculous. And so we're in search of other miracles, you know. Mm. That's the nature of the mind, isn't it? Otherwise, it just stands still. Absolutely. It is. It is the nature of the mind to seek new experiences. And that's fine too, right? Like if you said this podcast was going to last for the next 48 hours, I'd say, no, I think I'm good at two hours, right? Yeah. So two, at the two-hour mark, I'm going to want something different mm. for sure. Mm. You know, but that's just the nature of the mind. But what I mean is this, that, that fundamental human griping with our lot, right? Like, why is my life the way it is? Why do these things happen to other people but not to me? Or why, you know, the the general stuff that causes our psychological suffering. But there's a, there's a layer of suffering that we have no control over. And that is the environmental suffering, you know, the, the harshness of the weather or the circumstances and death and decay and disease and all of this. This kind of suffering is unavoidable. Life is suffering. This was, you know, Buddha's Buddha's basic teaching is that of dukkha, which is life is suffering. Look around you, like it's the most evident thing there is. You know? mm-hmm. But then there's the additional layer of suffering that refuses to accept life is suffering. That generates all kinds of new forms of suffering, like a whole marketplace of suffering, right? I mean, you create that kind of marketplace of suffering, now you need another marketplace of solutions to deal with that marketplace of suffering. And all I'm saying is, well, why create that marketplace in the first place that you don't need the other marketplace? Mm. Yeah, if you look at the entire marketing industry, or say the entire 99% of the marketing industry is simply uh, pressing on people's pain points, for money, essentially. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, it's just is what it is. I'm not saying it's bad necessarily, but that's essentially how the whole thing functions. Well, have you watched that documentary, The Century of the Self? No. Oh, you should check it out. It's a three-part documentary of, available on YouTube for free. Okay. And the, the very first uh, part, episode, goes into how marketing first began in our capitalistic economies, okay? And it was actually... The, the the father of modern marketing was this man named Edward Bernays. Yeah, I know him. Yeah, who was, oh, yeah you heard of Edward? Yeah. So he was Sigmund Freud's nephew, right? So he's like, okay, my smart uncle tells me that every human being has this untapped unconscious that is really driving every motivation. So why are we sitting marketing our products to the rational side of a human brain when we can market it to the unconscious and create this reservoir of need just you know inject the entire marketplace with this wanton desire and so one of one of the uh, the commercials at that time i think it was four trucks or whatever their advertisement was four trucks get them because the engine lasts for so many years this many <laughs> you know horsepower they're, they're appealing to that the, the rational you know man who's buying the truck and wants a good reliable truck and they changed the advertisement to this guy driving with a cigarette in his mouth and this beautiful lady sitting next to him and he's got his arm around her and he goes something like four truck feel what freedom feels like some bullshit like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you see what he did there, he just pivoted and and rather than try to market to that you know sensible side of us, he marketed to that irrational 
desperate yearning craving within us to better our lot, to have more, to, to, to satiate that void within ourselves. And when a product promises to do that, it will never deliver. Mm. But guess what? We're just going to keep going back to that, right? Yeah. It's like a shot of heroin. Eh? Yeah, it is. It is. And this is why, you know, when I first called it Advitaholics Anonymous, it's exactly that. It's an addiction. And spiritual teachings and the, the whole marketplace, the culture of it is drugs that sedate and satiate us. Right. When you watch, uh, and I'm sure you've done this because I know I've done this and most people have done this, in a state of acute suffering, you flick on a video on YouTube. could be Krishnamurti, it could be Ramana, it could be whatever. And you listen to that wisdom, Alan Watts, you listen to the wisdom. Don't you feel better, yeah. soothed, mm. grounded? Well, that's exactly it, right? Because truth shouldn't be soothing. Truth should be aggravating. It should only be soothing if you actually see it already for what it is. Then it is what it is. Mm -hmm. But if you are feeling out of alignment or in opposition to reality or resistant in any way, truth, truth should aggravate that. It shouldn't soothe it. So the words are true sounding, but the act of what you're doing is actually not bringing you closer to the truth. It's taking you further away because truth is exactly what is going on right now. And you are forming a strategy to avoid it. Yeah, it's very profound, yeah. I'll tell you what happens here, Shiv, is that there's... Uh, I get quite nihilistic. Like, well, what's the fucking point? And that comes up quite a lot. And I, I try and pick apart where that's coming from and think and stuff. But I guess the question is, is that um, without trying to create a map or, you know, as stages and stuff, is, is nihilism sort of quite common? It's, a, it's an unavoidable stage. Okay. If you have not... If a, if, a, if a truth seeker, for lack of a better term, let's just call them that because that's what we, we've been calling If a truth seeker has not eventually ended up in a deeply nihilistic state, then they have not gone far enough in their seeking. The, the state that I live in is one of intellectual nihilism and existent, but, my, but existentially feeling completely in tune and meaningful in my life. Yeah. The two things are completely different, right? So, so this is the way... And when I I've, I did my podcast with Chris Niebauer, we, we discussed this in quite a bit of detail. And then my recent one with Stephen Lubka as well. If you think of the human brain as these two hemispheres, and I, I know a lot of this you know, dual hemisphere thing has been debunked in the sense that it's not that clear cut and all of that, but just for a simple model on how to look at the human psyche, right? You think of it as these two hemispheres and you, you look at this, the left hemisphere is a rational reasoning, logical, breaking things down, analyzing, everything's a problem, everything needs a solution, all of that, right? And you have a self that is attached to that hemisphere. And that is the, the sense of self most people walk around with each day, which is this identity. Of, I am Alex, I am Shiv, I am a man, I live in England, I live in Canada, I do this job, I, these are my parents, this is my duty to my society, all of this as a citizen. All these stories, the cultural stories, the social stories that wrap into this identity of Alex, that all belongs to the left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. The right hemisphere is more the 
sensing, emoting, absorbing the environment. That's more the artistic side. That's where music and art truly emerge from. The creativity emerges from that. And there's a sense of self that's attached to that side as well. And that sense of self doesn't have a name, doesn't have an identity or any of that. It is the only way it can experience itself is this deep sense of being. That's how it knows. That the only way to know you exist is to feel that you exist. Other than that, you're just an idea. You might be a name on a piece of paper. But how do you? How do we know Alex actually exists other than his birth certificate and his driver's license and all of that? Right? Mm. It's your 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 actual physical existence and the sense of existence within you. Mm. And that doesn't have a name. That is prior to your name and all of that. Right? So what has happened as a result of the conditioning of society and over the years historically as we've moved more and more into this eurocentric way of encountering reality is that we've become hyper left brain focused and the right brain has become highly diminished in its capacity and its engagement with reality because they're just not given enough opportunities for that to happen it's like any muscle you stop using it it begins to shrink in size, right? And so we do not feel acutely the sense of being within ourselves, but we more than acutely have a sense of our abstract self. And so that is what is driving all the cultural changes now. It's all abstract. It's all related to abstractions of the self. All our political differences, all our social changes, all related to abstractions of the self, not really to the self itself, but who we fundamentally are. So it's I, w- I was chatting with with my wife the other day because we were at a coffee shop and displayed on the windowsill of the coffee shop was the sculpture of a penny farthing. You know what a penny farthing is? No, but very, very quickly. I've just uh, yeah. took on an office in a penny farthing arcade. So, okay. There you go. <laughs> well, now, Sorry, continue. Now, you, now you'll know what a penny farthing is. Penny farthings were the f- one of the first bicycles invented. Do you remember okay. those ones with the huge yeah, wheels? Yeah, big wheel, yeah. And, and the little tiny one following them. They were called penny farthings. That you, had, you had to sit on the big wheel. The seat was on the big wheel. And you rode it because there's no chain kind of system there. You were basically pedaling on the big wheel. And the back one was just for support. Right. Just kind of hung around there for balance. Didn't really do anything. It's a glorified unicycle. That's what it was. Right? Okay. And, and they got rid of it over time because it was dangerous. People were falling off and dying, right? <laughs> and so then they developed a modern bicycle. And the difference between the penny farthing, obviously, and a modern bicycle is two equal size balance wheels and a connection between them. So each wheel is moving the other and they're always in contact and communication. That is what makes the modern bicycle so efficient. And that is why it has endured. For over 100 years, we still ride them exactly in the same form. Minor improvements, of course, but the fundamental physics of the bicycle hasn't changed. And this is how the human brain also works, is right now we're all riding penny farthings. We're a society of penny farthing riders. But what we're looking to do is not go to the other extent and then blow up. The, this is the spiritual thing, is to move into this purely right brain state where the left brain materialistic society is bullshit. We never have to worry about money and all. Uh, there is no self. All that is, is a denial. It's like a, it's like a pendulum swinging to the other side a rejection of everything else. But I don't see that as the solution. The, the, the return journey is to understand that the two are 
need to be connected and that they need to constantly be in communication with one another. Shiv, the abstract self-identity and the being that I am are both two different levels of reality that must always continue to operate and communicate with one another. Mm. So where does what you've turned sobriety sit with that? What, what does that mean? The sobriety in this case is just stop getting high of the drugs that other right. people are selling you, right? But getting high on having extraordinary experiences. So if, if the experience you're having right now is that, you know, you're having great sex and you're in the midst of an orgasm, well, enjoy that. But know that that orgasm is going to last about 30 seconds, maybe a minute. But can you imagine wanting to constantly orgasm nonstop? Tiring, what kind of, yeah, you would better function. And what, what what would that kind of person look like? <laughs> Can you imagine? Just like, you know, that would be an affliction. You just walk around society like ejaculating everywhere you go. It looks insane. It might feel good, but after a while it'd be exhausting. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm trying to say is and why would any reasonable human being want that? Right? So this is what I mean is you have to be really distorted in your perception. Put that experience on such a pedestal that you want to live in that state all the time. That's that's not the end goal of human existence here is to live like, you know, some yogi in a mountain. Mm -hmm. That's that's an option as well. But there, there are many, many permutations and com combinations. Which one is right for you as an individual mm -hmm. is for you to figure out, not anybody else to tell you. Mm -hmm. So then you, you said, and then you move from sobriety to anarchy. Right. So anarchy is the state. So sobriety is the first recognition that what I'm engaging in is madness. So that's what I mentioned to you is I've done this for a while. So what the hell am I doing? This is just creating another level of suffering, right? And so when you, your response, when you first realize that what you've been doing has been so counterproductive to you is to rebel, mm -hmm. rebel against the system. And so there's a period in which you begin to question everything. So the sobriety is the first snapping of the link to this constant compulsive need, mm. excuse me, to follow other people. But then the anarchy is that state where you begin to question everything. You start to now break it all down. You start to look at everything you've done. These doctrines, the Buddhism, the Christianity, the, the teachers you've been following, the premise, all of it, the culture around it, the marketplace, you begin to question it and see through it at a level where it's like epiphany after epiphany after epiphany. You have to go through that process, otherwise it's incomplete because you haven't broken it down yet. You haven't deconstructed it yet. All you've had is an impulse, there's something amiss. Mm -hmm. But you don't know there's something amiss until you've deconstructed it, laid it all out and said, holy shit, this is just smoke and mirrors. Once you've done that, then that yearning within you is put to rest. And that's when you go back to that, what I call the antidote, which is really the life you've always lived, the person you've always been. Mm -hmm. This moment as it always appears. It's perfectly ordinary. Yeah, it, it, all, it, it almost seems the way you've described that there, like um, what Joseph Campbell would call the hero's journey, but in uh, uh, spirituality, if you like, or just one's beingness. Would you agree with that? 
it's interesting. This is the second time I've been asked about this hero's journey and Joseph Campbell being mentioned to me. I actually haven't read Joseph Campbell. I've oh. heard of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but of course, I'm I'm aware of the whole hero's journey arc. It might look like that while you're going through it. Mm. When you when you come back at the end of that journey, it feels more like a zero's journey. <laughs> it, yeah. it doesn't feel it doesn't feel heroic at all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel heroic to me at all. Mm. It feels like a natural gestalt of a process. Yeah, sure. Right. Mm. Every, every everything has to go through its own life cycle, and all this was was a life cycle of a pro- process unfolding, not of a person becoming something. So, a hero's journey pertains to a person, right? It pertains to a protagonist. Mm. But eventually, you re- you you arrive at a place where you realize you're not the protagonist of any story. Mm. That that story and the idea of being a protagonist is really a fabrication of your mind in the sense. Yeah, sure. There's life uh, happening. Mm. Uh, you know, there's like in the new age circles, there's like some idea of you sort of create your own reality, type, focus on something and you'll get it, that type of stuff. From my experience here, it seems that life is merely going on and there's no control over absolutely every anything and that which is aware of it or yeah that which is aware of it is is the only thing that we can ever really know if you like so so in the sense of without trying to get philosophical with it the sense of reality there do we as so-called individuals have any control over any of that There's the illusion of control, and that's more than sufficient. Because if you want to talk philosophically about ultimately, is there any control? Maybe not, but we don't know anything about ultimate reality anyways. We don't know what ultimate reality looks like. So there appears to be two people here talking. There appears to be an Alex, and there appears to be a Shiv. And we've accepted that premise. That's why we are, we're engaging in this conversation. That itself may be an illusion, right? But that's an illusion you're willing to accept. So if you're willing to accept the illusion of an Alex talking to a Shiv, why not just accept the illusion of control to some extent, to a practical extent? Mm-hmm. Because it becomes impractical at a certain point to just deny that there's any control whatsoever because then you're, that debilitates a person. Like how do you ever cross a street then if you don't believe you have control to avoid the cars that might be coming your way? Right. So we must assume some level of agency. We must assume some level of control, even if ultimately that control and agency are illusions. In my mind, I don't see reality and illusion as two exclusive things. I just see them as versions of each other. Right. They're just interpretations of each other. So we're we're always going to use a framework of interpretation of reality. We don't know what reality actually looks like. You know. Do we actually live in a world of color and sound? Like physics tells us that's not true at all. There's no such thing as sound. There's no such thing as color. There's just waves and particles. Even space, even space time is somewhat of a fabrication. So I don't even have any point of reference to what that kind of reality prior to space time would look like, right? 
All I can say is awareness. And even awareness is so amorphous a term. Right? Mm. So for, in order to function within this human reality, as human organisms, we have to assume some level of illusion while giving the space to the possibility that an illusion is all it is. And that's the only practical way to function. To take any absolute stance on either side of that spectrum, I think is actually foolish. It just debilitates a person's ability to function in an optimal and wholesome manner. Yeah. I think the it gets to the point of neuroticism for here, whereby I'll go, well, okay, we mentioned the word truth earlier. I'm trying not to get lost in the word, but if truth is there, there must be some something true, whereas all the illusion is here, so therefore we can distinguish between the two. Or is truth encompassing of the illusion and we have to have the illusion within so-called truth? Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and the I mind think just it runs a... off, and I can never, I can never get there. Yeah, I think the truth has to be encompassing, because if the truth isn't encompassing, then there's something other than the truth hmm. that exists, right? For me, truth is simply reality. What what is existence itself? Hmm. Okay, and what is can take the form of just a fundamental layer of awareness. It can take a form of an energetic substrate. It can take a form of a material substrate. It can take a form of organic life. It can take a form of sentient life. It can take a form of thoughts and ideas and beliefs. It can take all kinds of forms. Mm. All of that is the truth. It's like using sand, right? You use a sand and you build a sandcastle and you say, well, is this still sand? Yes, it is still sand. It's just in the form of a sandcastle. You'll crush it, you go back to sand, and you build something else. And that is also still sand. So it's all still truth, truth in different forms. So there's essence, and then there's the form of the essence. Mm. And the forms themselves constantly change. This is the impermanence of reality. Nothing stays the same. And whether it's physicists telling you that energy can either be created or destroyed, but is perpetually transforming, or if it's Buddhists telling you that life is impermanent and nothing ever remains, it's all the same thing. Mm. All it's saying is forms are transient and forms are not, not it. But forms are made of the essence of reality. And in that sense, all forms are true because they're made of the same essence. So it all depends, right? Like which way you're approaching it. The trouble becomes when people mistake the form as truth itself. So that could be, oh, you know, I, I'm a millionaire. I should always be a millionaire. There was something wrong with reality. So the form here is your wealth. Or that form could also be Ramana is the greatest teacher and everything he ever says is truth. And so that is reality. That is another form of the same essence. So as long as you're not you know, completely caught up in the world of phenomena and form and taking that to be absolute truth. We can allow for, for all kinds of forms to exist, all contexts to exist, mm. without denying that there's some fundamental basis of truth to everything. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Um, how do you sort of reconcile what the, like the radical non-dualist people say you know, like Jim Newman's and Tony Parsons and things like that, where it's quite 
Like there's no, there's no, in my opinion, I, I've spoke to Jim. I like him a lot, but th there's no human element to what's being said. It's just yeah. completely, there's no, everything's just going on. Can't do anything about it. Just. Well, the beauty of life is exactly that. Truth can take any form it needs to. It can take the form of a Trump supporter in the middle of a MAGA rally. It can take any form it wants to, right? And if we're going to sit and debate whether this form is more true than that form, we'll never get to the bottom of it mm -hmm. because none of the forms are more true than others, but all of them are made of the same essence of truth because that's the only reason they would exist. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about reality is that it permits everything to exist. So you can take the position of a radical non-dualist and say there's nothing to be done about reality. I got a problem with that. But you can equally take the position of there's everything to be done about reality, and I got no problem with that either. I'm not going to say the radical non-dualist position is wrong, neither is it right. It's one option, and that's about it. When I grew up in India, especially in the city of Calcutta, I don't know if you've ever traveled to India, but uh, Calcutta now known, now called Kolkata, is um, you know it's very very sort of spiritually oriented people. And um, there used to be a, a teacher called Meher Baba. Who God lived speaks. In Mumbai. He wrote God Speaks, huh? So he used to go around talking to these ascetics, more mystics, street mystics, or actually not talking to them because you actually couldn't talk to them, but taking care of them. In, Cal in Kolkata, I, I saw a number of these people myself. And these are people who are constantly in a state of trance and blissful union with whatever they are in blissful union with. But they are so debilitated by that state that they literally can't, they're, they're like comatose, you know, intellectually challenged, severely intellectually challenged people. They need to be fed. They need to be changed. They need to be cleaned after they go to the bathroom. They, they have no idea what their bodies are doing. They, they're fully, full-blown dissociation from their bodies. Mm. So they're in this blissful state that's wonderful for them, but the whole fucking world has to suffer cleaning their shit every day mm. and feeding them just to keep them alive. Do you, do you know what I mean? So what is the best way to live? I don't know. Maybe you might feel that being in blissful union and having other people clean you and put a bedpan under you is the best way to live. In which case, I'd say, great. That's a great option. Jim Newman may say, oh, there's nothing to be done. There's no real self. And so there's nothing to be changed about reality. Great for him. That's his choice. That's the way he feels best oriented to live his life. Is there, is there a, an aspect of spiritual bypassing in there? Perhaps. I don't know him. So I can't really you know, say. But... I've seen that many people who are drawn to radical non-duality are certainly using that as a spiritual bypassing tool. Because mm. it just makes things so easy, right? Like it's so cut and dry. Like messy human existence, no self. No <laughs> self equals no messy human existence. Just one and done. Why not take that option? You could. I see so much value in the messy human existence, though, mm. that that seems like a dry, arid existence, like living in a desert. Some people like living in the desert. Mm. I don't. Mm. You sound a little bit like how I'd imagine Jed McKenna to talk. Do you know, do you know Jed McKenna? I've, I've read. <laughs> I've, see, Jed is 
I, I read his books many years ago. I found him very compelling. Mm. I also found him a little bit... Um, I found some of his stuff not very believable. So he mixes it. The, 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 the interesting thing about Jed is that he... Because he does it as a narrative prose and a sort of form of a semi-fictional yeah, sure. biography of his own life, there's some aspects of it that I struggle to believe were actually true. But there's a lot there that you know really resonated with me at the time when I read him. Since then, though, I you know I haven't heard a whole lot about him, so I can't really comment. Yeah, sure. It's just when when I read it, I think I read one of his again about two years ago or something. And when I read some of your blog posts, it was, um, oh, this, I'm reading this. I'd be reading like Jed McKenna's stuff. So I don't know whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, to be honest, Shiv. But um, yeah, I took a lot from Jed, to be fair. So it's good for me. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've had people say, oh, you sound a lot like Jed. You sound a lot like Krishna. Yuji, uh, not Jed. Yuji, yeah. Yuji. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've read and listened to all of these guys in the past and some of their stuff has appealed. I always found though that there was a tendency for each of them to somehow inadvertently put themselves on some kind of a pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. Um and make certain claims that sound a little bit suspect. For me, Yuji's claim of his calamity and the biological transformations at the cellular level that occurred. How the fuck do you know what's happening at the cellular level? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Happening at the cellular. And like he grows breasts and what happened to his breasts? Did they come back in? And the little things like that, you know, lend credence. I, I don't lend credence to his story. But I also understand that a lot of this is relevant to the culture of the times, right? And sure. the culture of the times in the 70s and 80s in India was... It had to embellish a little bit. Everybody was doing it. I could uh, hear my parents in the living room talking to their friends and everyone's embellishing their stories a little bit. So, yeah. so you know, you got to take everything with a grain of salt. But ultimately, what does that even matter? Mm. That's my thing is, what do, what do my books matter? Like for me, and I say this to my readers, that really the best value you can get out of my work is entertainment value. Mm. I like I, I like to say that you know I'm a good option uh, you know alternative to Netflix. If you're thinking of watching some kind of movie on Netflix or reading a post, you can read a post. It's you know I'm hoping to entertain you just as much. But in terms of giving you access to truth, I'm not some gatekeeper on the truth. I don't yeah. want to be some gatekeeper, especially mm. on your truth, right? Mm. Do you know what I tend to find as well, Shiv, is that truth is quite cut dry, and as you said, it's like can completely strip away everything like a painful process um sometimes i feel like beauty um obviously subjective in many senses that is i I personally cannot align the two i very i struggle aligning truth and beauty because to me at least it shows up completely opposite ends of a spectrum so Yes, 100% agree with you. And this is the problem with spiritual teachings. They're so shallow that they equate them and do not delve into why those should be equated. The kind of beauty and love and bliss people equate with the truth is not truth at all. They're emotional experiences. Truth, when you really see into it, 
can be ugly. It can be horrifying. It can feel terrifying and traumatic. And it can feel deeply nihilistic, right? That's your experience with the truth, mm. I'm guessing. Yeah, gotcha. So, so, so what's beautiful about that? But this is where the intellectual, that, that powerhouse of the left brain and its grip, its cultural grip it has on people, ultimately has to collapse. Because that's the side that finally realizes that it can never actually perceive beauty. It can actually never perceive, understand love. And it can actually never grasp the truth. And what happens is when that side relaxes its grip on perception, and what emerges on the other side is a perception of life that is always perfect as it is. And that is beautiful. It's not beauty in the form, it's a beauty of the essence of the form. So so when so even when tragedy is witnessed, there's a beauty in it. Even when, you know, destruction and chaos is witnessed, there's a bliss in it. Even when there's, you know, suffering happens, it evokes a sense of love and compassion. It's not for the content. It's for the existence of it all. It's a different, completely different perception of beauty, truth, and love than what you're yeah. equating. Because that's not what you're seeing. There's not beautiful things happening outside. It's very ugly things. You look at, I mean, put on the news and there's no beauty there. Right? You, what you see happening in the world is a very ugly thing. But, but this is where I'm, you know, I'm suggesting that nihilism is a necessary gateway because nihilism takes you in to that state where the left brain realizes it can never get it. It is not equipped to understand life. Mm -hmm. It is only equipped to navigate life, mm -hmm. to make step-by-step -step logistical, tactical decisions, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. Right. So at that stage of nihilism, I don't like how-tos, but I'm going to ask you one anyway. Do we do we uh, simply just keep inquiring, keep going into oneself? Do we just, I don't know whether it's self-perpetuating anyway, but do, would you give any advice to that? I wouldn't direct anybody in any particular way, I would only redirect them back to themselves and their own experience of it. And I would suggest to them that any outlets they're looking for by reading others or listening to the wisdom of others, actually, does, they need to understand why they're doing it. And that in the long run, all it is is a coping strategy. It's a self-soothing strategy. It's infusing some artificial meaning into your experience of nihilism, but it's not actually addressing the nihilism itself. So it's okay to use a soothing strategy. I'm not that hardcore that I say, you're not allowed to soothe yourself. You know, sometimes the pain gets so acute, you'd need to soothe yourself just to get through that moment, and that's okay. As long as you're not kidding yourself as to why you're doing it, what the motivation truly is here. It's a little bit of bypassing, and we're all allowed a little bit, bit of bypassing, but let's call it what it is. Because as long as we're calling it what it is, we're still being sober about it overall in our approach. 
Mm-hmm. So it's like sneaking in that little bit of a drink to 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 soothe the nerves. That's okay, as long as you know what you're doing. Like, don't kid yourself. Mm-hmm. But that nihilism eventually it needs to get to a critical point at which a click happens where you realize you cannot figure it out. Like that, that click has to happen and it's not enough to say it. It's not enough for you to understand it intellectually, but it has to come from the inside. Holy shit. There's no figuring this out mm-hmm. at all. There's no meaning at this level of reality to any of this. That never will be. There's no cultural meaning, social meaning. All our morality, all of this is meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. They're social coping strategies we've developed over millions of years as a species. That's all it is, right? Mm-hmm. Throw us back. If an apocalypse came and we all went back to the jungle, fuck, we'd, all this shit would be out the window. <laughs> but but even there, there's, life is still meaningful in the jungle. So what kind of meaning is that? It's not the meaning of you know, our morals and our values and our principles and our social beliefs and our any of that. So then what kind of meaning is living in the jungle, right? This is, this is what I'm trying to get to is a layer beneath the thinking mind is where the reservoir of true meaning and beauty and love and all of that lies. Yeah. And you did a video, I think, um, on language and how language um, limits perception. When I I did listen to that, it was a few weeks ago, I listened to that and within 24 hours for some reason I was um, I was listening to something else and, and the, the guy said there was 96 words for love in Sanskrit, there were, I think there were three or four in Greek, but in English we have one and it was a bit coincidental that I heard that from I listened to that video from you, and then within twenty four hours I, I heard that. Can you can you maybe extrapolate that a little bit? Yeah. So I this became acutely evident to me when I lived in Japan. So I lived in Japan for close to eight years. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you know Japanese society and culture is very very different from most other cultures. And I've lived all over the world in Asia and Europe and. Uh, the Middle East, and I've seen cultures and languages and how you know people operate, but there's something very, very unique about Japanese society that that is very hard to relate to to someone coming into the country. It takes a long time to understand how society there even thinks. And there are all these, if we think language restricts us here in the West using the English language, the levels of restriction and compartmentalization that exists in Japanese society is just a whole different level, all right? And it all comes down to the way they use language and the structure of language itself. Language actually dictates how they think, how they think about reality, how they think about society, how they think about themselves. And so there, the, the Japanese ego, it's not that Japanese people are any less egotistical than we are, it's just the, the way their ego is constructed is a completely different combination than it is here. And so when you meet a Japanese person, they appear to be very humble because when we're looking at it from the lens of the Western ego, which is more bombastic and, you know, individually driven and all of that, they seem very humble and, you know, more d- deferring to the group consensus, all of that. 
But when you actually get to know them over time, you start to understand that really it's all the same thing. It's just a different orientation of it. And a lot of that has to do with the way their language is constructed. And I began to notice this because in the beginning, when I first moved there to make some extra money, I would do some uh, English language classes with people, like uh, conversational, right? Because people wanted to practice their English and all of that. And so some of the people I was talking to are much older, like in their 50s, 60s, elderly people who are you know, retired, want to spend some time learning some English. They would come over. And those sessions quickly turned into therapy sessions. We just start spilling their guts about all that, about the childhood and the troubles with their spouses and how they hate their kids and how they've been feeling so unsatisfied. And I would always marvel if they would open up in this way. So I asked them, I would ask them, like, do you talk to anybody else in your life in this way? They would say, no, we would never dream. So most Japanese people will not communicate with their own husbands and wives, with their own parents, with their own children about what they feel. They just hold it all in for entire lifetimes. And that's how they're generally taught to operate. But because they were speaking in another language, suddenly all those rules didn't apply and it just gushed out like a deluge of confession. So I was basically a priest in Japan. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite a profound uh, realisation, though, to be honest. I've never really thought about it like that. Mm. So what do you do now, Shiv? Do you, like, coach and stuff? Do you have a job? How, what do you do? I live my uh, normal, everyday life. I, have a, I, I work in the software industry. Um, I'm, I'm a software consultant. Um, I also write my books on the side. I have a family life. I have kids who go to school. I, this is it for me. This, this is, this is the, this is the, I'm living the dream. I love that, man, because a lot of people just like, they want to hear things like living in a cave and all that shit and living in retreat centers and all that. And it's just like, it's just never fit, fit with me, you know? See, there's there's a purpose to retreat. And I think retreat is an important aspect of life we've lost in our current culture. We don't actually create spaces for that. I think, you know, the, the, the demands of society are so acute. And now with technology, that demand is incessant. 24-7, something is demanding your attention at every point of every day. That I think it's a practical strategy to develop a certain portion of the person's life where they retreat from everything sure. that's going on yeah, around yeah, yeah, sure. so in that sense retreats are practical but to live at a retreat is bizarre to me mm. so because because that that just because unless unless that's you know that's your job you're you're an abbot of a monastery you're getting paid a salary to do it yeah. fine but but to live in a constant state of retreat believing that you're achieving something by doing it is a misconception in my mind. I think it goes back to that one, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah, and, and, and the matrix is everywhere. It's in the monastery as well. Mm. Can't escape it, yeah. right? It is, we, we, are, we are actively constructing our realities through our perceptions. We cannot trust the reality we create because we do not know what our perceptions are motivated by. A lot of that is biological. A lot of that is psychological. A lot of that is cultural. 
And so we just, we see a reality. And we have, we take it at face value and we operate it. Now, beneath that is a layer where we say, okay, we understand that the reality we are constructing may not be the ultimate reality. And so I take every moment of my life with a grain of salt. And I understand that what I see may not be true. What I think may not be true. My opinions may not be true. My beliefs may not be true. And just that space, that willingness to allow that anything that I see may not be actually true in that sense that, you know, the content of it is true, gives me that breathing room to say, all right, I'll let it be. Because even, even all of that, like my worldview has just transformed over the years. I'm sure it has for you as well, right? I imagine, you know, you appear to be in your 30s, if I'm not wrong. And are early you, 30s. Are you? <clears throat> early 30s. Um, and I'm, I imagine that you see life very differently than when you, you did when course, you were in yeah. your 20s. And in your 40s, you will as well. So which one is right? Which one is wrong? None of them, right? It's just constantly transforming process. So if we just accept that reality is perpetually transforming, it's never going to stand still. Mm-hmm. And it very rarely will be what we want it to be. And if it does hit that sweet spot that won't last very long, we can relax about trying to control it all the time. And we can focus on controlling the little things that we, we do have some agency and control over, like whether I wash my dishes today or not. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Shiv, I've loved speaking to you. Um, your book, uh, what was it called? Advitaholics Anonymous and Antidote to Spiritual Enlightenment. I bought that about two weeks ago and it's sitting on my shelf. So it's shelf development at the moment. Um, thank you for coming on, mate. I'm going to have to wrap it up because I'm meant to be somewhere in 10 minutes. I've already run over by yeah. 20 minutes. But thank you very much for coming on. Um, I appreciate it. Do you want to let the listeners know uh, your website, your blog, things like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the website is advitaholics.com, but I do most of my writing on my Facebook page. And uh, it's a public Facebook page called Advitaholics Anonymous. And um, my my three books are, so the book that you've purchased right now is the third volume. Mm. Again, none of them are connected, so they can be read in any order. But the first volume is, called Sobering Insights for Spiritual Addicts. The second one is called A Guide to Spiritual Anarchy. And then the third one, the one that you have, is called An Antidote to Spiritual Enlightenment. And all are available on Amazon.com. Lovely. Shiv, thank you. All right. Thanks, Alex. It's been a great blast. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.